Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. My name is Nicole Poznov. And I'm Gregory Robinson. And we are here with Roger Hudson. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. How are you guys doing? Good. We are very lucky today to have you on the, the show, Roger, because you're not only a guest, but you're a host as well. Not today, but yeah, I'm really happy to be yeah, part of you're, GradCast. You're one of our own, so it's uh, glad to have you on, man. No stranger to the studio. Thanks yeah. for having me. <laughs> it's going to be fun. But um, you're in neuroscience, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, and you, what, what do you study? I don't know, man. <laughs> you know exactly what I study, Greg, because uh, we talk about it all the time. But I study uh, the interaction between THC and CBD, which are two phytocannabinoids or compounds found within cannabis, the two most studied or the most commonly found within cannabis. Um, and I study how they interact uh, in order to produce or mitigate uh, psychotic symptoms that are uh, commonly found in schizophrenia. Is, is this a master's or a PhD project? Uh, it's a PhD. I'm currently in the third year of uh, my PhD. So I'm so excited to have you on because I also study cannabis. So I'm, I'm really uh, glad that we can talk about this. So what is your opinion about cannabis in general? Like, do you, are you pro, against it? I mean, I'm very uh, open-minded, I think, towards uh, the uh, use of all drugs of abuse for those who wish to use it um, for, for whatever reason. I think um, several uh, drugs of abuse um, can be used and are used, for that matter, uh, for medicinal purposes. Um, and cannabis is no uh, different from any other drug, opiates or stimulants or GABAergic agonists. Yeah, yeah I was so. going to say, could you just go into a little more detail about what each type of cannabis does or what kinds of cannabis there are out there? Well, I think, uh, you know, that's one common misconception, the, the types of cannabis. I think commonly used in, uh, I guess, layman terms would be the indica and sativa dichotomy, which uh, recent genetic uh, experiments, uh, genome-wide association studies have shown actually uh, are not accurate terms to to use to portray different quote-unquote types of cannabis. Um, other studies have identified up to 16 different uh, subtypes of cannabis ben uh, depending on how you categorize them on the THC and CBD content, the different terpenes or the terpenes are the uh, primary or the major parts of the uh, essential oils that make up cannabis, the, the scents and the smells and the taste that come along with different varieties of cannabis. Um, even the term strain that, that is commonly used, oh, cannabis strains, uh, that strain, this strain, it's not a, a proper term to be used, and this isn't really my background, but uh, strain is typically a, a term associated with bacteriology or microbiology, not necessarily with um, agriculture or botany, which, uh, yeah, so a more proper term would be variety or uh, something along those lines. So I've heard of sativa and I've heard of indica, but there's also a third that I've heard called ruderalis. I think that's how it's pronounced, ruderalis? Yeah, this is a little bit outside of my yeah. uh, area of knowledge. But so I'm not sure if that's a quote-unquote strain as well, but... Um, I think uh, it more or less refers to a different uh, subspecies of the cannabis. So okay. uh, cannabis sativa or cannabis indica are uh, technically different subtypes uh, in terms of um, the biology or the on the tree of life. They're different uh, subspecies of cannabis. Mm -hmm. there, there actually are some uh, theories that say that cannabis indica was the first species to exhibit uh, the growth of THC. And this actually happened through a mutation, uh, one study suggests, on a certain chromosome on cannabis. Um, and that the cannabis sativa, a different subspecies, actually did not display um, THC growth. So my understanding is that 
indica was it's supposed to be high THC and low CBD, and sativa is high CBD but low THC. However, when I look on the Ontario Cannabis Store, I see indica that's some that's high THC, some that's high CBD, some that's a mix. And yeah. when I look at like sativa, it's the same thing. And so I don't really get what the difference is. Again, yeah. It's, and it's, so it, it's, it's just kind of blurred together, right? It, it's a shame that, um, like you said, the Ontario Cannabis Store and uh, the legal um, uh, recreational cannabis here in Canada has these terms, indica and sativa labeled on them. They're, they're purely blind labels that are uh, applied based on the... Um, abstract feelings of the person that's using yeah. them. It's it's purely subjective and it has no basis in the uh, contents, the THC or the CBD level, like you just said. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's good. commonly, I guess, not necessarily would sativa be associated with um, higher CBD levels, but it would just, I guess, be associated with lower THC levels, if okay. that's my, yeah. if that, my understanding's yeah. correct. So I think, I think I have read a paper where they said sativa and indica, it's more about the feelings produced and less about anything about the genetics or where the strain has absolutely. come from. Absolutely, and yeah. Yeah, like, like, like and we I, just talked about yeah. before, the, the genome-wide association studies have absolutely disproven yeah. the whole indica sativa uh, association. They've had medical cannabis and legal cannabis um, from different licensed producers um, analyzed for their indica, or have indicas and sativas analyzed and compared, and they see that the THC levels, the CBD levels, the terpenes, and the genetics associated mm-hmm. with the indicas and sativas overlap to such an extent that it's no better at predicting the actual effects than chance, so 50%, um, which is absolutely in line with the whole <laughs> being blindly applied to the to the product. So for those of us who don't know as much about cannabis, could you explain what THC and CBD do exactly? Like if as a shopper, what would you look for if you're looking for a more a better high or like to be sleepier or I don't sure, really know. Sure, <laughs> exactly. I mean, so THC is the uh, commonly associated with the psychoactive effects or the high of cannabis, and it is the primary intoxicating agent within cannabis. Um, CBD, on the other hand, cannabidiol, is a non-intoxicating component of cannabis. Um, it can actually mitigate or, or prevent some of the pro-psychotic effects of cannabis. It won't necessarily offset or counteract uh, the high or the level of intoxication. Yeah, I, I think that something interesting to note where I think you're getting, where should you be taking something that's high in THC or high CBD for certain medicinal benefits? Mm-hmm. And the reality is that there's so many different receptors that phytocannabinoids can act upon. There's so many different organs that these receptors are in, and they're not. it's not very straightforward. It's not like you take CBD if you want to have beneficial effects, which I think is kind of where a lot of the people think is the truth. Whereas and THC, it's more like the mental, you're having a, like a, a psychological experience. Well, interestingly, many clinical studies have shown that CBD doesn't have profound effects in uh, unmedicated patients or in patients that aren't um, under the influence of, of psychopathology or anything like that. It more or less has a, a large effect in uh, patients that uh, are exhibiting signs of, of anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, PTSD, uh, even schizophrenia, and it's largely dose-dependent. Um, many of the, uh, I guess, uh, recreational users of CBD and even many of the medical users don't use a large enough dose, as indicated by the clinical studies, to actually actually achieve a benefit that, that is uh, clinically relevant or 
uh, actually useful for them. The doses required to get these beneficial effects are very, very high in some cases. In, in schizophrenia, for instance, clinical studies show up to, uh, well, many of the studies use 1,600 milligrams, which is 1.6 grams of pure CBD, all the way up to, uh, up to 75 milligrams per kilogram. So, uh, it's a very, very large dose of, uh, of CBD. Yes, I've seen pretty, pretty similar things. For the listeners at home, essentially, Roger looks more into the neuroscience side, right? And I look more into the peripheral organs, so other things, specifically the heart and the lungs. And what I've seen personally is that there's a lot, there's a lot of, there, there is evidence out there on animal models showing that CBD can be very beneficial. But I think it's with the animals we've been more... Um, we're, we're more okay with having, giving them, administering high amounts of CBD. Whereas a lot of the previous research in humans is that because recreationally you don't have very high amounts of CBD, there hasn't been too much research out there showing the beneficial effects of CBD. And it's only more recently we're starting to give higher doses and we're finding some of these beneficial effects. And so I think in the future, we're going to find more and more as we continue to do more epidemiological studies. So I'm really looking forward to the future to seeing what that may, what the uh, the effects may be. Definitely. I, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of potential medically for yeah. CBD uh, in terms of treating uh, a lot of these neuropsychiatric disorders, anxiety, PTSD, yeah. schizophrenia, like we've spoken about. Um, however, at, at the higher end of the dose range, there are still uh, many side effects, although CBD is largely yeah. associated with a lack of side effects. Uh, some of the large scale or larger scale, I, I should say, because there are no large scale <laughs> clinical trials with these with these drugs. Um, but but some of them have shown that in certain subpopulations of patients that there are uh, some profound side effects. For instance, really? in epileptic uh, children uh, with Dravet syndrome, a subpopulation of them actually exhibit higher levels of seizures than others. That's not to really. That's not to dismiss the the fact that a large number of them, uh, more uh, higher percentage than with any other currently available drug, actually show. Uh, profound improvements in their in their seizures or in their rate of seizures, uh, but yes, a subpopulation hmm. is uh, definitely at a rate uh, risk of increased seizures there, and and that's uh, across the board in terms of any neuropsychiatric disorder. Uh, yeah. So so it's a lot more complicated than just OCD definitely. is good or yeah. CBD is bad. Without it, a doubt, yeah. Yes, there there is. I want to talk something more about about THC because generally, I think a lot of people out there think THC is bad. But there is, without a doubt... Well, a lot of people would disagree with you there. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> I think in the scientific community, a lot of people Absolutely. outside of the cannabis field would yes. think cannabis is just bad. Specifically, THC is bad and CBD is good. But it's definitely not like that. And I'm sure with in the brain, you can give some maybe some examples. But I personally know that the eye is one of these areas where THC is actually very beneficial for the eye. And we've known for a long time that THC can have uh, effects on people with glaucoma. Yes. And there is now there, uh, I've seen on rats at least, I shouldn't say on humans, but on rats, they have this formula where they can take droplets of this THC solution and they can put it into rats on, on their eyes. So this is a, not even like an oral or like an IV. It's Almost a topical. Yes, exactly. Yeah, where they put it onto the eye and it's just a, just like a, like, like water, but it's got THC in it, of course. And this will lower the intraocular pressure. So this is the pressure within the eye. And this is um, associated with the negative side effects of glaucoma. 
and so it can prevent the progression of glau- glaucoma. And this is by THC. And if you do CBD, it makes it worse. Sure, yeah. I, I, and so I, there's many, I, I think there's many examples where THC can be beneficial. Well, yeah, just one, uh, I guess, example comes to mind in terms of its beneficial properties. Um, uh, uh, in Parkinson's disease, there's a degradation of the dopamine neurons uh, within a specific area of the, of the brain within these Parkinson patients. And this lack of dopamine going into other motor areas of the brain leads to this uh, Parkinsonian-like symptoms, the shaking, and THC being a dopamine agonist uh, actually increases dopamine transmission throughout the cortex and subcortical regions to, uh, for a short period of time after consumption, restore normal motor function in some of these individuals. Um, So that's one of the potential beneficial effects. But on the other hand, um, the dopaminergic and glutamatergic activity by THC within the striatum and and other subcortical regions in the brain, these, these are largely responsible for the pro-psychotic effects of THC. In a few different uh, studies recently, they've shown that up to 70% of uh, normally functioning um, healthy individuals, so not diagnosed with any psychiatric disorder, when they're exposed to a small dose of THC, just naive individuals that that don't typically use cannabis, up to 70% of them display psychotic symptoms uh, that largely resemble the pro-psychotic features of schizophrenia. So the abstract associations and reality distortion, all of these things. This um, is acutely or like? Acute THC administration in naive, healthy individuals. But, like, um, the, the effects that they're seeing, it's only happening in a short period of time. Like, it's not happening much down, like, down the road. With the doses on. that they're using in these yeah. clinical studies, they're, they're small enough doses. And thankfully, uh, to my knowledge, none, none of these patients have gone on to have prolonged psychotic episodes. But this is uh, one of the biggest concerns with cannabis legalization, with more and more people using cannabis, thanks to legalization. Uh, more and more people are exposed to this high THC variety of cannabis. Yeah. And thus, they're, they're more at risk for these uh, psychotic episodes. And in some individuals, like you're just saying, Greg, they actually persist uh, into prolonged psychotic episodes. And in those that are genetically predisposed um, to psychosis or to schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, THC can precipitate the onset of these disorders, schizophrenia in particular, uh, many years before um, if the individual did not use cannabis. Um, and, And there's a large um, number of variables that are affected. And if somebody's um, diagnosed at 18 years old compared to when they're diagnosed at 25 years old or 23 years old for, for schizophrenia, for instance, then there is a large difference in how much educational attainment, how much uh, social and uh, familial support that they have and the structure in their life. Uh, so being diagnosed at an earlier age has a profound uh, difference in the long-term viability of the like illness. Like negative, negative effects. If it's earlier on, it's worse. More than likely, yes. Yeah. Are there any other negative effects that recreational users should be worried about? I mean, you probably, uh, most of the warnings that are present on the uh, packaging or that are just warnings expressed by Health Canada, those are the ones that are, I think, of most concern. Could um, you name a few? I guess just, you know, you probably shouldn't drive after using cannabis, especially if you're uh, a naive user. Uh, That said, there are uh, several studies that show that, you know, even alcoholics or people that, you know, consume all drugs of abuse, uh, you can learn to do uh, any behavior, essentially, uh, and learn to do it well while under the influence. If you do it often enough, that is not uh, to to advocate for doing (laughs) that whatsoever. Don't drink and drive. Don't smoke and drive, people. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I think the addiction liability is certainly under underplayed. Or a lot of people just believe cannabis is a very benign substance, and that's uh, 
I guess it is relatively the case relative to quote unquote harder drugs of abuse, uh, cocaine or or meth or heroin, uh, because essentially there is no overdose capability with it, with cannabis. It's not possible to, to overdose. But there's several other uh, very severe health consequences that are possible with, um, especially prolonged cannabis use and addiction. Uh, the prosychotic uh, potential is definitely uh, many of the. Uh, biggest things. And that gets more into your research because you're looking at how it affects the, my understanding is the emotions and the memory of you're looking at rats, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so essentially what, what we do in my lab is we look at um, some of the uh, behavioral components and the molecular components that are associated with schizophrenia um, in, in the human population, but we do so in rats. So I administer uh, THC and CBD into the ventral hippocampus. So the hippocampus is one of the most well-studied areas of the brain, especially in rodents, but the, the ventral component of the, of the hippocampus is actually very much involved in uh, emotional processing, and the hippocampus in general is involved in memory processing, So uh, and the ventral hippocampus in, uh, has been implicated in many of the pro-psychotic symptoms of schizophrenia. Uh, for instance, in schizophrenia, the, um, many patients display um, reduced volumes within the ventral hippocampus, so just re uh, reduced tissue there. And uh, this is also the case in chronic cannabis users uh, that use high THC cannabis. They also have reduced uh, volumes within the ventral hippocampus. But interestingly, in these chronic uh, cannabis users, if they are co-administered CBD at, at, in a capsule form, oral administration, it can restore the brain uh, volumes of this ventral hippocampal region back to baseline, back to healthy uh, levels in, in healthy control patients. So that just underscores some of the, and this is in human patients that, that this was shown, so that just underscores some of the uh, beneficial effects that CBD can have, not only in um, uh, schizophrenic or, or disturbed individuals, but um, in addicted individuals and how it can mm. offset the effects of THC as well. So I just want to clarify this. So if someone were to take some pills that had just THC in it, you would expect them that their ventral hippocampus would get smaller over time. Now, I'm not sure about if oral administration would do that. I think that's... At least smoking would, right? The subpopulation Let's say the they were vaporizing was, THC then. I think just it was uh, inhalation of cannabis is how they classified it in the yeah. study. So I think that would have included both vaporized and smoked cannabis, but yeah. I would imagine it being mostly the same thing. So their ventral hippocampus would be smaller and then... After a certain point of time, they started giving them a mix between THC and CBD, like the combination, and their their brain would start to grow again, the ventral hippocampus. Ab yeah, th that's exactly exactly it. Now, again, th this is an epidemiological study, so there's no yeah. way to, to so determine... So it's not actually causality, right? The, the, yeah. the people, when they came into the study, they already had lowered volumes within the hippocampus. There's no way to actually say that the t cannabis use was the, the reason for that, yeah. that reduction, um, although they did um, differentiate between all these other drugs of abuse, made sure they didn't, didn't have existing psychopathic disorders. Um, and what would the reduction of hippocampus do? Like, would you have loss of memory, like uh, certain personality disorders, or what would it, how would that affect you? Well, the loss of hippocampal volume is associated with several psychiatric disorders, depression, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, schizophrenia, uh, Alzheimer's disease, cognitive mm -hmm. dysfunction, just intellectual disability in general. Did they um, find in this study that those group of people were associated with those? I think in that study in particular, and for those who are interested in the study, it's by Beale, A-L, B-E-A-L-E. Uh, -E. uh, in the study, I don't think they included subjects that had 
pre-existing diagnoses for okay. these psychiatric disorders. So they haven't gone forward in time and seen what the effects were. I, I don't. Bl- I think they specifically excluded yeah. individuals because those it, the presence of depression or schizophrenia or any yeah. of these disorders that would also contribute to that uh, volumetric deficit in the hippocampus <laughs> that would be a confound and they wouldn't yeah. be able to uh, ex- explicitly state their hypothesis or, or yeah. contribute knowledge towards our hypothesis. Yeah. So. What I'm just curious is is we, we can see that there's a decrease in size in the ventral hippocampus, but I'm just curious, are there actually any functional effects that we're, we, we, we know of in humans? So it's quite possible we might just have a smaller ventral hippocampus, but there isn't any effect to it. Yeah, the functional or the behavioral changes mm-hmm. uh, precipitated by that, I think, is yeah. what, yeah. Um, and I don't know if in humans there is a way to... Um, completely isolate that ventral hippocampal change <laughs> and, and completely correlate it or, or It'd be uh, difficult. Do we causal. even use our entire hippocampus? Like, is it full, like all 100% of it is used? Yeah, don't we not? only use like 2% of our brain? Oh, I, you know, <laughs> very commonly uh, used statistic. Kidding. You know, I think they say 10% of the brain. Something no, you, like you, that. You, yeah. Maybe at one point in time, um, you would use only... 10% of the hippocampus for a specific purpose, but at all points in time, a lot of your brain is working in overdrive. Your brain yeah. uh, consumes more than 50% of the oxygen that enters your bloodstream. Um, after the uh, blood is pumped from the heart, one artery brings it directly to the brain and the other brings it to the rest of the body. So the brain is the most important organ in the, in, in the entire body, and it's what makes up consciousness itself. And so... Uh, it's a yeah. It's a little bit more complicated than just ten percent or two yeah. percent. Yeah. I was making a joke. But yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it. You use more than ten percent. I don't know if there's a way to actually know. determine that, but I don't think we've have proven it. Whereas a lot of people do think that, but it's not necessarily true. Yeah. So just in general, what are your thoughts about the legalization of cannabis in Canada? Well, you know, I think legalization of uh, drugs of abuse is a very good thing. Um, having them criminalized. Uh, leads to individuals getting them off the street. And uh, although cannabis is um, a quote-unquote easy drug to work with, it it doesn't uh, produce this overdose or even a a large bout of physical withdrawal symptoms when you stop using it, um, there are risks to obtaining cannabis on the street. Most individuals who use cannabis or drugs abuse in general are only... uh, participating in criminal activity when they're obtaining the drug. Uh, They're completely law-abiding citizens the rest of the time, um, and the drug uh, helps them with whatever uh, reason they're using it for. Having the drug uh, in a decriminalized system is the same thing. There's, uh, it allows for organized crime to profit from it. It allows for children to have access to the drug. And uh, having a legal system where you can walk into a, a department store and have the exact percentage of any psychoactive substance labeled exactly on the product. Clean, not laced. <laughs> you know, it's part of the reason why, and again, you can't really overdose from cannabis, but it's part of the reason why we have this heroin overdose epidemic uh, because people are buying heroin, what they think is heroin, but it's actually contaminated with fentanyl. So they think that they're getting something, but it's actually something different, and they're putting it in their bloodstream and they end up dying from it. If, if these individuals were to have a legal system to obtain their drug where it was uh, explicitly stated the percentage or the quality of the drug itself, the only time you would ever see an overdose is through a suicide attempt. Um, because individuals typically don't want to die from using their drug of choice. That's just, that's just, the, that's just the truth of it. 
Yeah, so so I, it's I, absolutely yeah. a, a good thing that Canada's moved towards cannabis legalization and jurisdictions across the world are moving towards the same. The World Health Organization just last week announced that uh, cannabis uh, will be moved down on its schedule of controlled substances. So we are moving in a positive direction and hopefully uh, other drugs of abuse uh, can get a chance to move in the same direction soon. And edibles are also starting to be legalized in the next future, right? Or yeah, I think Health Canada, soon, yeah. just the Government of Canada just released the, uh, the proposed regulations uh, for the edible uh, and concentrate uh, legalization, and that should take effect in October. So, And then it should be 60 days or so afterwards that they come on the market because of the uh, regulation involved in submitting samples to the government. And so, so by it, Christmas. <laughs> yeah, Christmas. Gifts. Some Christmas edibles. <laughs> now, it's, it is uh, still legal to make your own edibles. Um, you can do what you want with your cannabis once you get it, but uh, your legal cannabis, that is. Um, uh, yeah, organization that I'm a part of, the Canadians for Fair Access to Medical Marijuana, they were a part of the Health Canada or Government of Canada initiative. They were asked to put together a series of recommendations. You know, I was on the side of not giving a large degree of attention to the idea that edibles should be used as um, a, a component of any medical cannabis patients um, got, you know, series. You didn't want it to or you did No, I don't think it should be okay. for, for a number of reasons. Uh, the biggest thing with, I guess, today's uh, medicine, right, is the uh, precision dosing. The precision, like, you know, if you get a drug. It's very variable. Yeah. One milligram uh, uh, pill or anything like that. Whereas in edible cannabis, you have up to a 10 to 15 percent yeah. um, leeway that you know can actually be in there. And there's no way to precisely dose yeah. any specific. Just the uh, amount of food that you've ate prior to it makes a huge difference. Well, that's, so, that, and that, what that, type that, of food? Too, that, right? That's a different issue altogether. The bioavailability. But what, what I'm more talking about is one bite of the same brownie is going to have a different level of THC, CBD, any phytocannabinoid. You're talking about relative, the actual brownie itself. Relative to the next brownie. Br- br- multiple ways that it could go wrong right Uh, well just it's not equally distributed throughout the product yeah so there are ways on the market already that that provide precision dosing in Mm -hmm. oils and capsules that have the precise amount of thc but edibles don't allow for that it's not currently possible to equally distribute it but even so within that individual cookie one bite to the next is going to have a different concentration under the proposed regulations you could could do easier things like gummies and you can make that pretty consistent yes no that that, that's a good point as well but then even so the the amount of um uh, product or thc for example that that is in there say if it's labeled as a 10 milligram um gummy bear Mm -hmm. it is allowed a 10 to 15 percent leeway or um change relative to what is actually advertised on the product so somebody who believes that they're getting 10 milligrams of a product they're actually might only be getting eight and a half milligrams of that and and for medicinal patients specifically it's not that big of a deal for recreational patients if they're getting 11.5 milligrams rather than 10 they're probably happy if they want to get higher but for medicinal patients precision dosing is extremely important I think we're uh, getting pretty much to the end of the show. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show, Roger. I really do appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. I'm sure it won't be the last time. I I don't (laughs) think so either. Um, If anyone wants to learn more um, about GradCast uh, or wants to come on the show, you can go to, you can send us an email at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Our website is gradcast.ca. If anybody wants to get in contact with you, Roger, what's the best way to do that? Um, well, you can get in contact with me on Twitter if you'd like, at RMJ Hudson. 
Uh, or you can email me at rhudson7 at uwo.ca. Hudson is H-U-D-S-O-N. Awesome. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at GradCast Radio. If you would like to listen to us, we are on CHRW 94.9 every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Uh, we're also on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And some of our select episodes have, are now on YouTube at GradCast Radio. Uh, this episode was with our guest, Roger Hudson, was hosted by myself, Gregory Robinson, and... Nicole Posnov. And produced by Connor Chato. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great night. Stick with SOGS. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.